So this week as a staff, we do something we do um, once a year. Once a year around this time of year, we get together as a staff and we uh, just plan a day. And uh, part of the day involves eating good food. Part of the day involves planning major events, calendar events, things that we're talking about for the next year. So for 2015, we also get together and talk about um, evaluation of what's happened and goals and dreams and those kind of things for the year ahead. But one of the things we always try to do in the midst of that setting is to do a team building exercise, something that helps us um, come together, work together uh, and try to do something kind of out of the ordinary that helps us think or or have fun, or in some way build chemistry. And so um, this year what we did was we did this new thing in Nashville that came along not too long ago called the escape game. Anybody here done the escape game? All right, we got a couple there, right? So what room did you all do? Wendy, what room did you do? You got the easy one, all right? Did you all get out? All right, Aaron, what would you do? The heist, did you make it? Okay. That's good to know. All right, so we did the heist, all right? Uh, the heist is the hardest room there. And this is what you, um, what happens. You, you get put in a room and they lock the doors. And there's no door to get out of. Now, there are clues hidden in the room that you're in. And really, it, it not, you can't give away too much. They, you're sworn, like you sign your life away if you give away too much. But you have enough clues to get out of that room, and that leads you to another room, and you're looking for it. Now, they have a story involved, and our particular story was that a curator of a museum had stolen a priceless piece of art, a Monet, water lilies painting, and that it was our task to steal it back from the curator. So it's called the heist. Seven of us worked together. Work on doing it. Now, let me just tell you real quickly, there are more than seven people that work on staff here, but in the words of Alan Searcy, Alan doesn't do games. All right? All right? So Alan didn't join us. He joined us for the good eating and the meeting part. We didn't join us for the game part. And so we worked on it for an hour. You have an hour to get out. And you're looking for something specific that will get you out in an hour. And there's a clock running and the whole time they're, they're watching you, they're observing you as you're doing all this stuff. What I thought about was that there were moments in the midst of that time, we're all together, when someone over here would find a clue that would match a clue somebody had over here. And there were several times in the midst of that where all of a sudden you went, ah, oh, we got it. Or there were sometimes we did that and we didn't got it. But there were many times we'd be like, oh, it makes sense now. This goes to here and that goes to here, which means we go to there and, there and you start jumping ahead. And you worked through that for an hour and there were several of those aha moments when everything that was cluttered and unclear suddenly made sense. Now, just so you know, only 27% of people that do the heist get out and escape. And your staff at First Baptist Goodlettsville is part of the 27%. Here's our picture with the painting. Look at that. Now, I don't, I don't know why they made me stand up and everybody else got to sit. But there we are with our escaped tags. And I, I thought about that because we've been in this series called AHA. And the point is, we've been looking at these moments in the life of believers and people that are followers of God, and even some people that aren't, in 
the scripture and they have these moments where everything kind of comes together and they feel God's calling on their lives and they take action. There's that awakening and honesty and action. And as a result, their lives are changed. And today's the last sermon in that series. We start a new series next week that I'm really excited about. But today, as we're finishing it, I was studying this week, looking at sermon stuff and praying and doing all of that, when God just kept using something that I wasn't preparing for the sermon to impact my life. In fact, I read a quote this morning in between the two services from a great um, prayer guy theologian from a couple hundred years ago named E.M. Bounds, and he said, the greatest sermon the preacher must preach is the one he preaches to himself. And this week, God has been speaking into my life, not through sermon preparation, but through a Bible study we've been doing on Wednesday nights. And going right along this aha sermon series, I've been leading a group through experiencing God on Wednesday nights. And this particular week was the most challenging, convicting week of Bible study I may have done in 10 or 15 years. It was that moment... In uh, in Henry Blackaby's experiencing God, it's all about these aha moments with God and how we find ourselves experiencing Him. And God invites you to be a part of the work that He's at, that He's always at work around you, that He invites you to be a part of that, and He speaks to you through various means. But then you come to a place, and that's what we talked about this week, where you have to decide whether you're going to do something about it or not. He calls it the crisis of faith. And He says every crisis of faith has four statements of truth about it. We're going to look at those real quickly, and then we'll dive into the sermon in just a minute. But the first one is this. He says, every crisis of faith or every encounter with God requires faith. He then says that encounters with God are God-sized. Thirdly, what you do in response to God's revelation reveals what you believe about God. And the last one is faith requires action. And as God dealt with me this week with those four statements over and over and over again, it just was dwelling down into my life. And I, every time I tried to prepare a sermon, I couldn't pull away from that. I, I mentioned last week, I'm teaching a, a Old Testament survey class on Thursday nights. And it, it, every time I looked at the stories that we're talking about, God just kept bringing those four points back. In fact, I gave them those four points as part of the Old Testament survey the other night, just because God wouldn't let go of it in my life. The Spirit just kept using it. And everywhere I turned, it came up. And when I began to pray about maybe even using it this morning. I began to pray about where God had wanted me to use it and what story. And all these stories just started flurrying in my mind from the Bible because it is everywhere. Every encounter with God that you find in Scripture, those four points are present in some way. And so as my mind was swirling around, it was like I suddenly was trying to figure out a path to go on. And I reflected back on my favorite books from childhood. The Choose Your Own Adventure books. How many of you know what these are? Right? How many of you have no clue what they are? Yeah, all the you, they all are deprived down here, right? This was a book. You would read the first ten pages and you get to page nine or ten and it would say, if you want to attempt to slay the dragon, turn to 36. If you want to run away from the dragon, 
turn to page 52. You would turn to whatever page. And when you got to the end of that, you had another choice to make. And over and over. And you were choosing how the book read. So the book didn't read like a normal book. You jumped around all over the place and you chose your own adventure. So here's what we're doing today. Because I believe so strongly that these four principles are found in every encounter with God. It is choose your own sermon day. All right? Amen. I'm not, not particular. I'm not going to preach four different ones at the same time. That would be that would be an encounter, right? But you as a congregation are going to choose what we're talking about today. So here are your four choices. Abraham's call or Abram's call. Gideon's battle. Nehemiah's plan or Paul's conversion. So here's what you do. I want you to decide right now which one of those you like. You don't have a long time. This is a split second decision. All right. Which one you want, and then we're going to vote. And whatever you as a congregation vote on, that's where we're going today. Are y'all looking at me weird? Are y'all okay with that? Doesn't matter if you are or not. You're going to have to vote, all right? You're allowed one vote, so don't vote for three. That splits the vote, all right? So how many of you want to read or read? How many of you want to hear a sermon on Abram's call today? Oh, we got one. Sorry, Miss Betty. Doesn't look like that's going to win. That means that in the two combined services, we have a total of five votes for that. So you know what? Apparently I need to preach on that because y'all don't like that very much. All right. Gideon's battle. Let me see. Woo. All right. Nehemiah's plan. Okay. Paul's conversion. All right. Take your Bibles. Turn to the book of Judges. Chapter six. You know what's interesting? Y'all made it easy on me. That's what I preached on in the first service, all right? Y'all could have made me preach two different sermons today. Judges chapter 6. And we're going to talk about Gideon. I love Gideon for a couple of reasons. First of all, I love Gideon because he is one of the least likely heroes of Scripture. He's a guy that shouldn't be where he was, and yet God used him. I also love Gideon because... Gideon had trouble with faith. I don't know about you, but there are times in my life when I have trouble just with faith. I also love Gideon because he executes one of the absolute worst battle plans in the history of the world and defeats a powerful enemy using it. Judges chapter 6. Now, here's what you need to understand. God's people are under judgment. In verse 1, it tells us that they did evil in the sight of the Lord, gave them to the hand of Midian seven years. Midian overpowered them. They, uh, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, the Malachites, people of these would come against them. They would encamp. So here's what would happen. They'd plant crops. They'd grow them. They'd get them ready to go. And then all these armies would come and say, thank you very much. We'll take what you've grown. Verse 11 of chapter 6. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Orpha, which belonged to Joash the Abizurite. Again, the Old Testament's full of names for babies if you're looking. right? Abizurite. Well, his son Gideon, that's a job that some of you want right here, was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. So he took the wheat that they had grown and he took it to the place where they didn't think it would be, which is in the wine press, and he's beating it out there so that it's not seen. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. That's 
Uh, that's an ironic title for Gideon because in a minute he's going to tell him, I am neither mighty nor a man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, sir. I love Gideon here. Please, sir. If the Lord is with us, then why is all this going on? Where's all the wonderful stuff that we hear about where you delivered our fathers and said, didn't they not bring us out of Egypt? Now you've forsaken us. Now, I want you to get this picture here. He's getting the wheat ready in the wine press and he has an appearance from the Lord, or the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord says to him, Gideon, man of valor, and he says, Sir, wait, before you go any further, where have you been? We trusted you. We worked for you and nothing's happened. What, what's going on? And the Lord turned to him and said, Go. In this might of yours. Remember, this is not one that he said he was mighty. This is God saying he was mighty. I'm going to give you the might and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. He says, wait a minute, Lord, you don't understand. How can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. Manasseh was not on the top list of the best tribes. They were way down the list. They were on the bottom of the list. And he says, my family, my clan is the least of the least. And I am the least in my father's house. I'm the lowest of the lowest of the lowest. I am the last person anyone's going to listen to. How can I save Israel? God looks at him and says, just simply. I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Here's the thing. Gideon has this encounter with the Lord. And in a moment, his life is completely transformed. And he's at a moment and a crisis of faith because he has to decide whether he's going to trust what the Lord is just saying or he's going to trust what normal people would think. He's the guy getting the wheat ready in the wine press. And God says, you're about to deliver an entire nation from oppressors. The first thing we see that Blackaby talked about, that four things that just come over and over again in my life. The first thing there is that encounters with God require faith. Now you tell me, what is faith? Believing in what you can't see. Trusting in God's going to do what he says he's going to do, even when it doesn't seem like everything would make sense for him to do it. Faith is not sight, right? In fact, in Scripture, they make a clear distinction between faith and sight. We live by faith, not by sight. The idea there is simply this, that if you can figure it out, if you can plot it out, if you can get it on a spreadsheet, if you can get the plan laid out, if you've got it in your mind exactly how it's going to work, then it's not faith. If you can see it, if you can touch it, if you can hold it, it's not faith. Because faith means believing in something that you cannot get your head around, that you cannot get on a spreadsheet, that you cannot work into your life in any foreseeable way. That is faith. Trusting God to do what He says He will do, even when everything else says it shouldn't. Faith is not reasonable. If it's reasonable, it's not faith. 
He comes to Gideon and he says to Gideon, it is not reasonable, it is not smart, it is not wise for you to be the leader of the people who would destroy the Midianites. But guess what? You're it. In fact, faith is often the dumb choice. The one that doesn't make sense. That one that doesn't feel right. Scripture says there's a way in the heart of man that seems right, but in the end it leads to destruction. It also says in Isaiah that his ways are not our ways. His plans are not our plans. They are higher. They are better. They are truer. God often will do things that are unreasonable, things that aren't smart by human reason in order to show who he is. Think about, I mean, this is one of the most beloved stories in Scripture. Why is it a beloved story? Well, it's beloved because it's Gideon, the lowest of the lowest of the lowest that God uses. If God would have gone to the strongest military commander of the day and equipped him with all the best weapons of the day and said, now go take out this enemy in the most logical, reasonable way possible, it would not be a story that makes it into the Scriptures. It's because God uses people that don't expect to be used in ways that don't expect to be used for his glory and his way. And Gideon has a hard time believing. One of the things I love about him is he has trouble with faith. In fact, he tests God a few times. God, if if you are who you are, I'm not saying you're not, but if you are who you are, then I'm going to need some proof. I'm going to need a couple of signs. And he asks for a couple of signs. He, he, he gets some meat and some stuff and he bread and he puts it out on a rock and God sends fire and consumes it. And he says, that's great, God, thank you, appreciate that. Um, I'm going to need a little bit more. So he puts out some fleece and he says, God, I want you to make this side wet and this side dry. And God does that and he comes back and he says, all right, God, that's great, that's great. But just, just as control, just to make sure. Now, some of you identify with this. Tonight, just to make sure that's not what it would have normally happened, I'm going to, I want you to flip it. And I wanted you to make the other side wet and the other side dry. And God does that. I asked in the first service, what is faith? And somebody in the service said, faith is not needing a sign. And it's true. You trust that God is who God says he is. And that he will do what he says he will do. And you base your life on that. I'm afraid that... Part of the reason for the impotence of the church in America is that we've got way too much stuff figured out. In fact, I think most churches in America right now, and I don't know if you know this or not, but the American church as a whole is on decline. I think people are leaving. It's not the impact that it used to have. And I think as a whole, most churches are in protection mode. And as long as we get a few more people here and there, we don't lose too many people out the door. And we, we, our budget, is, is we make budget or get close to making budget. And the bank account's good. And we're, we, we're, we've got two or three months of expenses in the bank. And we've got a savings account over here in case something goes wrong. And if we could just be like that then we're good god we're good we've left no room for faith because we got it figured out and if you can figure it out it's not faith gideon couldn't figure it out (laughs) i don't know how this is going to work god I, i really don't i'm the least of the least and i gotta know you're with me to go Part of the reason Gideon needed so much encouragement is because encounters with God are God-sized. They're not normal. They're not challenges. They're not 
everyday occurrences. They are God-sized. And what God was asking, I know we read this, and it just is a bunch of names to us, the Midianites and the Amalekites. Those are just names to us. But to Gideon, these were the people who controlled their lives that they could not stop. This was the force of the day that was taking over every aspect of what they were doing. They couldn't escape. They couldn't get away. It was with fear that they lived all the time. It's the kind of thing our brothers and sisters in Christ are dealing with right now over in parts of Iraq. Where the Islamic State is surrounding and terrorizing and killing. They live in fear at all times from these people. And my guess is that time after time after time, Gideon, based on what he said when the Lord showed up, had prayed, God, do something about God. Take care of God. Can you come? Can you show up? God, where are you? But when God comes to him and says, it's your job, that's a God-sized task. Gideon knows right away, the reason i got to have all these signs, the reason i got to know this is because I don't know how you're going to do it, God, but I cannot move forward unless I know you're with me. Because a God-sized task requires God. I want you to see how big the God-sized task became over in chapter 7. Then he, and that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And at the camp of Median was north of them by the hill of Morah. And the Lord said to Gideon, here's the idea. Gideon has got his force together. They're camped out there. It says, you can, you can almost picture that there's a camp here. The Midianite camp is over here. This Israelite camp, this is Gideon's group. He's getting them together. He's working them together. And he's recruited. He's taken care. He's gotten his troops together. He's done everything he thinks God would want him to do. And he has figured out how to get 32,000 troops there. And in that day and time, a very respectable force He's got him there. And God looks at him in verse 2 and says, The people with you are too many. For me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, Look what we did. So God says, Listen, you got too many men. Can I tell you, there have been very few military commanders in the history of the world who thought, I got too many. I have. Whew. I just wish we didn't have as many forces as we've got. Because you know what normally wins in battle? The many or the few? The many. God says, you got too many. Well, well how much do you want me to cut? I, I could get rid of a couple of thousand. God, you're right. He says, what I want you to do. I want you to go out there and say, if you're scared, go home. So he goes out and says, hey, if you're scared, go home. And 22,000 of them leave. 22,000. Thousand leave. Now, I'm not a math major, but that's over two thirds. And I bet Gideon's like, whew, God, I don't know whether you know this or not, but two thirds of my army just left. Are we, we're good. All right. We don't have enough now, God. We may have had too many. We don't have enough. And God says, wait a minute. No, Gideon, you still got too many. So take another water. I'll test you. And if I say this to you, let him go, you let him go. If I say keep him, you keep him. So they go down and they start to drink water. And, and the Lord says, hey, Gideon, just look at everybody. And whoever laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall let him go. But those who raise the water to their mouths, you keep. Some of you know this story. Some of you are reading it right there. How many remain? Anybody want to do the math real quick on that? 300 out of 20, 
excuse me, 32,000. <laughs> if you're giddy and you're like, <laughs> you know how much work it took me to get 32,000 guys together and all you needed was 300? Why did God want 300? Well, it tells us because he didn't want Israel taking any claim. He wants this to be a God-sized task. Can I tell you something? In Scripture, God only shows up when God-sized tasks are involved. He didn't show up when the reasonable tasks are there. I was reading a few months ago, and I've talked about this book before, The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. And in that book, he talks about a trip to China and he's in China and he's having discussions with these people. And as he's having discussions with these people, he talks to them about different things. And then he asks them this question, which I think is just an amazing question. He says, let me ask you, because you are in China, you're not an official church you're a persecuted church. They had just told him, by the way, I've used this quote before. It's right after they told him, hey, in China, uh, prison is our seminary. We don't trust pastors that aren't already been in prison. Right after that, they're talking to him. And he says, well, let me ask you a question. He says, your neighbors, your non-believers, your unbelieving friends and neighbors, how would they describe the people in your church? And he said, oh, one of them raised up just quickly and said, and Nick Ripkin said that almost to the point that I thought that can't be true. And then they all corroborated. He said, oh, the people in our community that aren't believers, they would call us the people that raised the dead. And I read that. I thought, oh, yeah, talking about Jesus. He goes, no, we, we've seen people raised from the dead. And Nick Ripkin tells this story of how one after another, all the way around the table, started telling of healings and miracles and raised from the dead and things that happened. And not just, hey, I went to the doctor and things are clear. People that were dead back to life. And Ripkin, who grew up in Kentucky, said, to my American ears, it almost sounded unbelievable because in my mind we have left so little room for God-sized tasks that we are now completely shocked when God actually does something that only God can do. So Gideon is there and he's got his 300 men. And he's at the moment in his crisis of faith. And this is the most convicting statement that Blackaby says in his book, in his study, and I've dealt with it all week, and it is simply this. What we do how we respond to God's invitation or revelation reveals what we believe about God. Gideon gets one more sign from the Lord. The Lord sends him down to camp and he's sitting around the camp. And one of the guys shares a dream about what had happened the night before. The Midianites and all the Malachites were there. And he says, Gideon heard him talk about this dream and a barley bread tumble and it laid the tent flat and the other one said, you're talking about Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given his hand Midian and this entire camp. And immediately Gideon knows what he's supposed to do. He divides his men into three companies, a hundred each, and gives all of them trumpets. Now, again, I don't know many military commanders in the history of the world that when they're getting ready to go to battle, says, guys, get your trumpets ready. And they march down there. And Gideon, based on what he sees, 
The hundred men were with him, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and they had jars with lights in them and they smashed the jars and the three companies blew their trumpets and they smashed their jars. Then they had in their hand torches and in their right hands the trumpets and they cried a sword for the Lord and for Gideon and every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army and the army fled as far as Beth should have toward Zerah as far as the border of Abimahola about Tabith and the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all of Manasseh and they pursued after Midian now you can read the rest of it there but it ends up with God's heads being brought back to camp so here's the question with what Gideon did What did he believe about the Lord? So Gideon gets the 300 men around and they blow their trumpets. Now, I know it's not great military strategy, it seems, but can you imagine being fully asleep in a camp and all of a sudden 300 trumpets are blown at the same time? You ever been in a room with one trumpet? I remember I was at youth camp one time and um, not to suggest any hijinks at youth camp ever happened, But I remember being awakened by my youth minister by a poorly played trumpet. Because our room had slept in the day before. And it scared me to death. Can you imagine 300 at once with the shattering of stuff going on around? It sounds like a horde is coming at you. And they turned on themselves. Gideon didn't lose a man and God accomplished what he said he accomplished. But what it shows in Gideon is that he believed what God had said. And as this week, as I dealt with this question over and over and over again, I just ask, what are my responses to God's revelation reveal about what I believe about God? If I got to have it all figured out before I start going forward, it means that I don't think God can complete what he says he'll complete. Blackaby in his study gives a few case studies, and it just, they hit home. First one talked about a young couple that heard a missionary speak and immediately thought, God's calling us to the mission field. But as they got home and began to discuss it, the wife says, well, you know, my parents are never going to let us take their only grandchildren out of the country. And they decided that instead of going to the foreign mission field, they would just stay where they were and support from what they were doing then. Blackaby says, in the way only he could in the writing, said, basically they're saying, we believe that God used Moses to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelites go, but he can't convince my grandparents to let the grandchildren go. He talked about a church. A group of people that had been praying for a long time to start a church, and they really felt like that this Calvary church was where they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be sponsored by them. And they went to Calvary's leadership and they said, listen, we'd love to be sponsored by it. We believe this is of God. We've been praying about it. God has laid you on our hearts. God has laid you on our minds. We think that is it. This is 25 of us have been praying diligently for three years. And God has laid you on our hearts. And Calvary Church said, uh, we got to take care of the building fund we got. We just don't see any way we can do financial resources right now to help out a plant like that. Every case study I read 
I just realized how reasonable I've become when it comes to the work of God. What you do in response to God's revelation reveals what you believe about God. The last case study he uses is of a church that um, decides that they really want to do what God wants them to do. So they get together and they get a budget together and they get a budget together that's challenging and more than they think they can do and say, this is the goal we're reaching for. And they go out and they do a pledge campaign for that budget. And when they get through with the pledge campaign, it comes up 10 percent short. And instead of saying, no, this is what God's called us to do, they decide to cut the budget by 10 percent. Because that's what the numbers say. What you do in response to God's revelation reveals what you believe about God. I'm just being real open and honest with you now. It's one of the most convicting statements in my life in the last few years. Here's the last thing Blackaby says. Faith requires action. Gideon could have heard all of this. He could have heard everything about it. But it didn't show that he truly believed God till he put it into practice. And even with Gideon, with all the tests and trials he had laid out there and all the ways God had shown him, he still had to get those 300 men around and say, our military strategy is to crack a few vases and to blow a trumpet. God gave them the victory. But it didn't come without first having faith and trusting God was going to say what he said he was going to do. That without a God-sized understanding that this is not something we can do. You see, God wants people to do God-sized things because it shows them that there's a God that exists. And it shows our neighbors, it shows our friends, the people around us, that this is something of God. It reminds them of how great he is and it draws them to himself. Can I tell you something? God's people are not going to convince the world of God's power through well-reasoned political arguments. We're not going to convince the world of Jesus Christ as God's only Savior through our rational logic. I think it's there. I can rationally, logically explain the Christian faith and everything to you. But that's not in the history of the Bible and the history of the world. That is not how people are one to faith in Christ. It's not through a rational set of arguments. It is through heart change that comes from an understanding that we are serving and talking about God Almighty who is in control of all things and loved us enough to send his son it's an emotional response to a fact that comes in seeing god do what only god can do as the american church when we cut god out of the place where he can do things we are preventing people from seeing the glory and the majesty of god because we got this figured out so what does that mean for you what does that mean for you and your family what does it mean for your job your career what does it mean to the people you hang around. Where right now do you have something going on in your life that doesn't make sense on a spreadsheet or doesn't make sense in a five-step plan or that you can't imagine how it's going to fix itself without God? Then are you willing to trust that He'll take care of it? Let's pray together.